Last week, I read for us these really nice words that are contained in Acts chapter 2, verse, uh, one of the verses here at the end, uh, verse 47, the last verse of Acts chapter 2. It talks about the fact that the, the company of those who have believed at this point were praising God and having favor with all the people. That was a good time. It was great to have favor with all the people. It is a phrase, and, and very deliberately put here by Luke, that parallels for us a description of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his childhood years as he continued to grow and had favor with God and with men. And so this early church had favor, but of course it was a short-lived favor. It was a short-lived favor for the early church as it was for Jesus himself. The opposition would begin here in chapter 4. We've got three chapters in Acts of no opposition, but then it starts here in 4 with this annoyance. And annoyance is a great word. It's a great word for us in English to think that this is something small, it's something pesky, it's just a little annoyance, but it is an annoyance that will blossom and bloom and grow, and it will wax and it will sometimes wane throughout the rest of the course of the millennia until our Lord Jesus returns. Every following subsequent chapter in Acts, save one, is full of some component of opposition, of persecution, of conflict, of struggle. It is oftentimes from outside of the church, and yet it is sometimes within the church as well that we find this struggle to exist. The conflict in chapter 4 arises over what is an unquestionably good deed, which nobody can deny. They'd like to deny it. You can, you can look at the way that, you know, you, you heard me read it for us. Verse 14, they see this man standing next to Peter and John, and he's healed, and therefore they have really nothing to say in opposition to it. Verse 16, as they are conferring together, what do we do to these men, because a notable sign has been performed and everybody is witnesses to what has taken place, and we cannot deny it. There's, there's nothing we can do. In this situation, whatever we are going to figure out how we're going to deal with this particular thing that is going on, we can't deny what has taken place. And Peter himself, even as he begins to speak to them, points out the irony of being annoyed at such an event. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he addresses them in verse 9. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, it's, it's, a, it's a really moment. <laughs> this is why we're on trial, because we did a good deed to a crippled man, and therefore you have brought us to this place because it annoyed you. Now, this is important for us, this simple illustration, because in particular, we live in a day, in an age, where people are growing more annoyed. 
with us. Growing annoyed with the church. Now, you might want to say, wait a minute, stop. Why, why would you be annoyed with us? We're, we're kind of good people. We go to work. We pay our taxes. We try to do good deeds for people. We're like the Boy Scouts. We help people across the street. We, we do good things. We help to feed people. Why would you be annoyed with us? Behind all that we might do, or perhaps better to say rather in the center of who we are, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And let me just, quick parentheses here. Throughout Acts and in the Pauline epistles as well, oftentimes you will hear a phrase, the cross, preaching the cross of Christ, preaching Jesus and Him crucified. And many times, whether you're talking about the cross or whether you're talking about the resurrection, it's a single term that is meant to be understood for us collectively. So when we talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, it is a term that they're using to incorporate both the suffering, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you're talking about the thing specifically, and usually it's made clear by reference to other points that are in here. But the cross of Jesus Christ is unyieldingly offensive to the world. And that is what it must be. That is its purpose. And it will always have that effect. You cannot remove the odor from the cross. No matter what we do to it, no matter how many times we scrub it, no matter how many good deeds we do, no matter how many art shows we might have, or men's breakfasts we might have, or concerts we might have, the cross has an aroma to it. For those who are being saved, of course, this is now bringing Paul into the discussion here, it is, in fact, the aroma of life. But to those who are perishing, it is the stench of death. And it will always be the stench of death, and the stench of death is annoying. It's unpleasant. In Acts chapter 4, it begins to stink to the leadership, to the people who are in charge of things. This is neither unprecedented, we of course saw this in the life of Jesus, nor is it unexpected because Jesus taught them countless times that this is, in fact, what they would suffer as well, what they would endure as well. If they rejected him, they'll reject you as well. So there's nothing unexpected about it. There's nothing unprecedented about it. But it does, for the apostles at this time, create a new need. And that new need or necessity, which is the focus of this chapter that is before us today, is for boldness. It's for bravery or courage. The question in Acts chapter 4 becomes, how do you handle fear in the face of danger? So this chapter before us today demonstrates the necessity of boldness 
They needed boldness and courage, and we need the same. We know, all of us know here together, that there are plenty of times when we are not only tempted to be silent, but where we have, in fact, remained silent because we didn't want to offend. We weren't sure what the consequences would be. We weren't sure how someone would react to the message. And so we closed our mouths and we didn't say something when we should have. We are tempted to be afraid to speak a word about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of the great things, one of the encouraging things for us is that the person who is doing the speaking in this difficult situation, this trial, the first of them that will exist in the book of Acts, is of course the exact same person who two months prior to this had denied his Lord to any number of people, little children, little girls, had, had denied Jesus Christ. And so we have in Peter not some kind of person who stands before us or, or speaks this word of boldness as if he himself has never failed at it. He's kind of the paradigm of failure who is now speaking the word with boldness. He knows what it is to be afraid and to be confused about what to say. So he and uh, John, of course, John is silent through most of this. We don't know if we have every word recorded for us, of course, but we don't hear anything from John in particular. They're on trial. The stakes are high, and they need a wise boldness. That's the necessity. Now, as we look at the passage, let's look at the display of boldness. There before educated and powerful people, and people who have authority, at least within this particular locale, within this setting. And these folks are well-connected. They know lots of people. You get the sense when you hear this person's related to this person, they're before the whole high priest family. And they thought they had put down this whole Jesus thing. They thought, you know, we killed this guy a couple of months back. What are we doing back here in this exact same place once again? How is this taking place? And they're certainly not going to condone this resurrection idea. Sadducees aren't big on resurrection. They confronted Jesus, and now they're confronting those who are preaching in his name. So they are annoyed, and they intend to put these men in their place, these men who are uneducated, illiterate, untrained in the law, they are the ones who have the training. These guys don't. They are common. Now, this, you don't always need to do this in Greek, but in, in this particular case, it works out kind of well. The Greek word for common is the word from which we get our word idiot. These guys are idiots. Let's see what you've got to say. And they want to put them down. They want to put them in their place. One can imagine them condescendingly asking, okay, all right, tell us, you guys, tell us, tell us your authority, tell us your power. 
Tell us where you went to school. What's your terminal degree? Have to do. What are, the, what are the letters that are now after your name? Uh, who is it, by the way, who gave you the right to teach here in this particular place? And, and do tell us your ridiculous message. Go ahead. The answer begins in verse 8 and continues for verse through verse 12, no doubt, and abbreviated as Luke records it, message. And Peter is clear and he's unambiguous in declaring the resurrected Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the name, the one and only name. He is the one who healed the man who you see standing before you, and he is the one by whom, in whose name, we must be saved. Peter is playing a little bit here with the semantic range of the word to be saved. So the word to be healed and the word to be saved are one and the same word. We read them differently in our English, but it's one and the same word. So you can think of it as he's the one who healed the man and he's the one by which we must be healed as well. Or you can say he's the one who saved the man and he's the name by whom we must be saved. But Peter's also brave, not only in declaring what Jesus has done in terms of healing and saving, but he says now to those who are in authority, to those who have got them on trial, you crucified him. Now, this is already now the third time in each of the speeches in early Acts here that we have seen exactly this phrase or some variant thereof, that you crucified him. It was in the preaching at Pentecost. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it was in the preaching that Peter had done then after the miracle had taken place where he says, and you killed the author of life. And now, in a much more difficult setting, he says it once again, you crucified him. Now, of course, I've said pastorally along that this has, this has a particular application to those who would have been in Jerusalem at that time. And yet, the existential necessity for all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to own that statement, to personalize that statement. Here's what Luther would say about this. You must get this thought through your head and not doubt that you are the one who is torturing Christ thus, for your sins have surely wrought this. Therefore, when you see the nails piercing Christ's hands, you can be certain that it is your work. When you behold his crown of thorns, you may rest assured that these are your evil thoughts. They did it, and we all own it. In verse 11, Peter, in his speech, pulls out a quote from Psalm 118, and he applies it to them. You rejected the best stone, and the one you rejected, the one you said, this one is useless, he is now the cornerstone. Not you, 
with all of your fancy degrees, not you with your pedigree. That one is the cornerstone. And we can appreciate a little bit of irony here that takes place. So Peter, the rock, is declaring as a rock who really is the cornerstone. That one. The rock points to the cornerstone and says, no, I didn't make the guy well. Don't look at me as the one who did this. The cornerstone, the one who is the true rock, is the one who accomplished this. And in verse 13, we see the reaction to what has taken place. They are astonished at the boldness. It is on display for them. And undoubtedly, the, the, the thing that astonished them is the same kind of thing that would astonish us were we judging the situation or watching it unfold. So surely it involved the content of what they said. But no doubt, it would have also included the tone, the demeanor, the posture, the, the unspoken things that contribute to some appropriate level of confidence. This isn't false bravado. It's not brashness or belligerence. Instead, it is situationally prudent boldness that we are seeing. Now, that's a little bit of a mouthful of a phrase, situationally prudent boldness. But the reason that I want to emphasize it is, is this. A lot of things are happening in our culture right now. And one of the things that we must analyze as Christians is what not only is the bold thing for us to do or to say, but what is the wise thing for us to say in a particular situation. So the fact that some Christian may be being quote-unquote persecuted for what they have said or done doesn't mean that that's the appropriate situation. The license here isn't to just be brash, bold, say whatever you want to say. It's to be situationally and prudently bold. So for us, that requires analyzing what does boldness look like in a particular situation and setting because they will be different from one another. They can't all fit into appropriate categories. And we will see throughout the gospel, uh, through, throughout Acts, that they don't all get, all get treated the same, neither by God nor by the apostles in various situations. Some will be stand up and confront, others will be escape in a basket. We have to be prudent as we think about boldness. But this for them is like Nehemiah. Before Artaxerxes, it's like Esther in the court. It's like Joseph before Pharaoh or Daniel and his friends before the chief of the eunuchs and then before Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's like Nathan before David. You've got to think carefully. You've got to think biblically. And then you've got to speak boldly. And so they speak in boldness, wisely, and continue to speak even when they are told not to. Now, this isn't just some kind of, you know, hey, we, we, we only serve ourselves here. It's not a freedom of the self that's being trumpeted by them. It's a submission to a different authority. 
And, and Peter's response to them says, listen, even you would have to agree with this. Are you really telling us that we should obey you instead of God? And they would have caught it. They're caught again. There's no way they can be, they, there's no way they can't agree to what Peter is saying. You judge for yourselves. Are we going to listen to you or are we going to listen to God and testify to what we have seen and heard? Which leads us to the obvious last question that is for us in this text today. We see the necessity for boldness. We see the display of boldness. And we cannot help but to ask, where'd you get it? What's the source of it? How did this guy change? How did the transformation take place? What's the source? And Luke wants Theophilus, to whom he is writing, and all of the generations who are reading over Theophilus' shoulders to hear this clearly. And so he answers the source of the boldness for us in multiple ways, but they are all inseparably connected to one another. Let's start with them here, and there's no way to order this appropriately, so I'm just going to kind of go through it chronologically within the text itself. So source one of the boldness that is demonstrated here is, is where Luke records for us, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke. Verse 31, after the prayer, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What is the source of the boldness that they have? Well, the source is the Holy Spirit that has been given to them. Peter's character may have been an impulsive character, but boldness, and certainly prudent boldness, is not characteristic of Peter. It doesn't come of him naturally. It is from the Spirit. So what we are reading is supernatural. And for Luke, recorded in Luke chapter 12, this is a, a, a fulfillment. So Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. This, Acts chapter 4, is that, Luke chapter 12. This is the fulfillment of that promise that is found there. A spirit-wrought transformation and inspiration is on display as Peter speaks. But if the spirit is like the wind or if the spirit is like the breath of God, how does one go about capturing the wind? We are never presented in the book of Acts or in the rest of the New Testament with an approach to the filling of the Spirit that is a contemplative exercise in self-emptying. So you don't get the Spirit by concentrating and saying, I'm going to empty myself right now, and I'm now going to be carried along by the Spirit of God. Instead, Luke articulates for them, for us, the corresponding source of boldness that is connected with and inseparable from this working of the Spirit in Peter. Source number two. Source number two is the one that is identified by the Inquisition, by the Sadducees, by the elders, by the rulers who are there. It is where, of course, they say they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter's proclaiming Jesus. 
He's talking about the power of the name of Jesus. The disciples had gone to the school of Jesus. They had gone with Jesus. They are doing what Jesus did, healing. They are speaking the way Jesus spoke, with authority, with boldness, calling people to repent. And one more thing that is taking place here, or a thing that summarizes what is taking place, is that their lives, that is the apostles' lives and those who would follow after them, are now being cruciformed. In the prayer uh, that they pray when they quote from Psalm chapter 2, they apply Psalm chapter 2, why do the people rage against the anointed? Of course, they apply it to Christ appropriately, but then they take the next step. And they say, these people were aligned against Christ, and now essentially what they say is, and now they're aligned against us. They see the equivalency. Their suffering is, in fact, part of the suffering of Jesus Christ. The apostles are being melted down. And their lives are being poured into a mold. And the mold is formed in the shape of a cross. And so their lives are being conformed to that of their Savior. And that makes them bold. And it makes them wise. This is the Spirit of God uniting them and conforming them to their Savior, Jesus Christ. If you want to, if you've got your Bibles open, flip to Luke chapter 20. If you don't, that's okay. I will read this for you. Because you need to see... As the favor passage paralleled earlier in this text, you need to see how this passage echoes exactly what took place in Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, we read this. One day as Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. This is exactly the same question by exactly the same people. And Jesus will have a couple of questions for them regarding John and his ministry. And they did not know, they could not provide an answer to the questions that Jesus asked. In other words, they were tongue-tied. And Jesus, as you move along in Luke chapter 20, unsurprisingly, quotes Psalm 118 to those who are questioning him. And he quotes it, and he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And you get down to verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Now, I suggest to you that's exactly what takes place in this inquisition in Acts chapter 4. Peter probably hears the question and goes, wait a minute. I know this one. I am so prepared for this test. I didn't have to study. Actually, I did because I was with Jesus the whole time and I saw exactly what he did, exactly how he answered this question, exactly how he used Psalm 118 to shut them up. And thus he provides the answer. His life is being cruciformed. He's doing what Jesus did, speaking the way Jesus spoke. 
brings us to the third source of boldness, and that is to say this, boldness in the faith comes from the Word of God. They speak the Word, they teach the Word, they pray the Word, and the principle is clear. The more we hear the Word, the more we study the Word, the more we memorize the Word, the more we spend time together as God's people in the Word, the greater will be our boldness. Why? Because the Spirit uses the Word. These aren't two different things. The Spirit uses the Word. That's verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit uses the Word of God to speak. And that's what makes us bold. And let me just add one thing to this idea of the Word of God. The Word of God birthed within them good theology. And you see it within this prayer itself. God is sovereign, sovereign Lord. God is creator of all things. And then in verse 28, God is the one who has providentially arranged every single thing that is taking place, including the persecution of Jesus Christ and including this persecution today to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And when you put things in that context, when you realize, wait a minute, this isn't out of control, we're part of the plan of God, we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus, that changes the whole thing. You go, oh, wait a minute, I see it, I get it now. I'm part of the purposes that God has been working in this world. Quickly, the fourth source of boldness might be one that would be, we could overlook it because it's not stated in so many words that is a source of the boldness, but given the fact that we were in Acts chapter 2 last week, the fourth, fourth source is that when they leave or when they are released, what they do is they go to be with their friends. They get with their friends and they get together. Your boldness in the faith and how you speak will grow as you spend more time with God's people. When you are habitually with God's people. Peter and John were together when they were going to pray, and now they're with their friends. Boldness is not a personal pep rally. It's not a place where you go and you sit down quietly and you try to get yourself psyched up to do something. Instead, for us, the people of God, so that no man may boast, boldness is a corporate endeavor. Boldness is something we do together. And of course, that leads us quickly to the fifth and most obvious source of boldness in this text. They prayed. And you know this, this is classically said of this passage, they didn't pray that God would remove the opposition. Why pray when you realize you're part of a sovereign plan that God would change the plan? What they pray for is that in the midst of the opposition, God would keep them bold. That they would still be able to speak 
this word. Thomas Akempis says this, This is that which most of all hinders heavenly comfort, that thou art slow in turning thyself to prayer. You want to know why you're not bold? Because we're not praying together. Pray together. And the place is shaken, a theophany. God says, I'm here. And as one of the early church fathers, I'm not, I'm not the source of this great phrase, one of the early church fathers said, the place is shaken. And as a result of that shaking, the apostles and those who are gathered are unshaken. A firm foundation is being set for them. We need boldness to speak. Not triumphalism, not brashness, not cockiness, but situationally appropriate and wise boldness. They continued in boldness. The book of Acts is to be continued by us in boldness. And the source of boldness is a well from which we can continue to draw. It is not tapped out. It is open. It is on it is flowing, drink from it, all of you, and may the Lord fill us.